Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a great guest. We have Rasid Khan, who is a geneticist and is uh, and runs a blog called Gene Expression. So, hi, Rasid. Hey, what's up, man? And uh, so I I was uh, I invite you to to talk about genetics, which is I think a topic that is going to be much more in 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 the framework of of, of the discussions, and and I think particularly uh, in these times uh, that 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 there have been a lot of of publications around ancient DNA. I mean, I'm I'm from Peru, and there have been like the recent study that has been published by. David Reich, but uh, sadly, I think it hasn't get much coverage here in 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 in, in Peru because probably for, because of the context of, of, of the of the pandemics. That also has been uh, some research in some some research that is uh, in in Mexico about ancient DNA and its implications are really curious and that show a much more genetic diversity there. But also because of the context of, of the pandemic, also like it doesn't have been much talk. But in, in years before, there have been like this much more important um, uh, influence of ancient DNA, in particular in the case of India and, and in China. And I think, how, how do you think this is changing our conversation in terms of how we think? Uh, in history and how what are the political implications also mm -hmm. well i mean i think the, the the first thing that it changes is uh it gives us a sense of how people moved in the past and it turned out they moved a lot and people in one area replace people in the same area over and over again um, across what we call a temporal transect so what archaeologists and to a lesser extent historians um, i mean a lot of this stuff is deep time so it's archaeology not history uh, have often told us in the last couple of decades, you know, in the decades after World War I or II, is there wasn't that much population movement and that, you know, it was mostly cultural change and human population stayed kind of in place after the initial settlement. And so, say, like around the year 2000, we had a stylized view, and this is geneticists as well, uh, based on modern distributions that, well, what happened is people left Africa And you had this situation where there were migrations out of Africa, and after the initial wave, they just kind of stayed there. So there was like, a, you know, there'd be arrows going to Europe, arrows going to East Asia, from East Asia across to the New World. And so there'd be this diversification of arrows that happened between, you know, 50 to 30,000 years ago, depending on, you know, went to Australia 45,000 years ago, New World 15,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. Really, it's closer to 15 now that we know but you know 20 years ago it'd be clovis it'd be closer to like 12. in any case um that's what we thought what ancient dna showed is um so you know when we create these arrows they're based on inferences from present day data and so you construct a model and you use the data and you fit the data to the model and the parameters are going to tell you kind of the past history that's as, as good as we can do What happened when the ancient DNA showed up is like, whoa, it turns out there's huge differences between the predictions and what we see from the empirical data. So if you have a tree that you generate empirically, ancient DNA is actually sampling the nodes upstream in that tree empirically um, in terms of like, oh, well, you made this prediction and previously there was no way to confirm it because those people are gone. But now you can actually look at the DNA of the people at that time. And you can see how it conforms to your conforms to your predictions. And it turned out there was a lot of replacement. There was a lot of migration many times in many places. And so this hypothesis that only culture changed and people didn't move turned out to be mostly false. Uh, the other thing that was also found was we have this idea of a tree that's like splitting from branch to branch. And it turned out a lot of populations are very, very new mixtures of different populations. So for example, Um, people in the New World, the American Indians, it's often said, um, or Native Americans, indigenous people, I don't, you know, I don't know how they say it in your country because there's all these different words. That's political, right? But in any case, you know what I'm talking about. The idea was like they're a branch of East Asian people. And you can tell this by physical appearance and by the primitive genetic work that we had, but it was always a little off. It didn't always make sense. And if you look at indigenous people in the New World, you look at them, and you're like, well, I mean, they don't quite look Chinese or Japanese or Siberian. I mean, they kind of do, but not totally. Well, it turns out that about like 30 to 40% of their ancestry is related to a population that flourished in central Siberia, you know, 
20, 30,000 years ago. And this population is actually genetically closer related to Ice Age Europeans. And modern Europeans and lots of people in West Asia and South Asia due to recent migrations have ancestry from this group. And so this connects, you know, and like say Europeans are like, say Northern Europeans are about 20% from this group. Let's call it population X. Like we call them ancient North Eurasians. You don't, it doesn't really matter. Um, call them population X. 20% of the European ancestry is from this group. 40% of the indigenous American ancestry is from this ancient group, right? And so these two populations share these ancestries. And it turns out most populations in the world, most of the major ones that we can think about are actually mixtures, relatively recent mixtures of all these like different branches. So I guess the two things that ancient DNA has taught us is one, people move a lot, people replace other people. And two, modern populations are mostly mixtures of more ancient populations. They're not, you know, unfiltered descendants of some original founding population. An exception to this could be um, Australia, you know, there's a few places that are exceptions to this, but, uh, not many. And, um, you know, the other thing, you know, I'm throwing a lot of things at your listeners, but the other thing is obviously we found out that a lot of populations, most populations outside of Africa have a certain amount of Neanderthal ancestry. Some populations in Papua and East Asia have this Denisovan ancestry, which is another type of human. And so everything got way more interesting. Everything got way more mixed. And, um, the simple model that we had 20 years ago was kind of overturned. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think in some ways it's, uh, it's re rewriting the human history. I think this kind of, uh, of research is, is very important. And I, I think it, one of the, the things that I was going to, to go to, go to, to more specific topics is the, the issue that has been popped up uh, recently. So I remember like, I heard of the Tocarians like um, some years ago, but I, just her in relation to Chinese history. And now the, the region where allegedly they, they, they live in, 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 in the Xianjin region in, in China is, is also a, a focus of, of political debate. It's true that the, for the coronavirus pandemic, this, this topic hasn't been that much talked about. But the issue is that obviously, like, the Tocarians, even by the accounts of, of the Chinese, didn't look uh, like East Asian populations. And it seems like it was a population that, that had a much more European look. And the, and even populations that don't necessarily were Tocarian are, uh, have a much more European look. And, and, and it's the, some, some people could say that they were uh, at least a part of them, like have a much more East Asian appearance despite being a, a Turkey group uh, and, and, but others also point out that even in the Uyghur population, there are population that, that, that doesn't have this kind of, uh, of, of features that are much more East Asian and, and much more either Milister or Central Asian in, in general. And I think it's, it's very curious, like, because I know that, that it's a very tense topic because I think, also, China, we has invested a lot in, in 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 genetics, and this which is has a uh, has a huge deal in 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 the in, in the research that is going on. Uh, I think it, it it I don't know to what degree they're going to 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 try to switch the the dynamic there to try to justify their presence there because. It's clear that at, least at one point in history, like the populations there were were different to a certain degree. Even if not all, it, it was a significant population that was different than what we now understand as as as, as Chinese in the sense of Han Chinese. Yeah, I mean, so what you're talking about here is, you know, obviously like politics, history here, and then genetics there, right? And so when you say Chinese. That means different things. It could mean a citizen of the People's Republic of China, which is, you know, the 5 to 10 percent of the population that's not Han Chinese is also included in that. Or, as you said, you could just mean Han Chinese, because historically China was an ethnocultural civilizational entity and it was a political entity. And the two kind of are coterminous in a way. But um, more recently, obviously, we don't think of nation states as much that way, depending on the nation. Um, so, you know, that's a complicated issue. Another issue is Xinjiang, that area. Um, what's today called Xinjiang, the, the new territories, was conquered by the Manchu dynasty. And so it's, you know, integration into the Chinese nation state, into the Chinese, you know, political system, along with Tibet, is actually an artifact of 
People's Republic of China inheriting the Republic of China's borders, which in turn inherited the borders of you know, the Chinese Empire, the Manchu Empire. And these areas traditionally were not actually administered as part of China proper by the Manchus. So in China, the Manchus you know, played the role of Chinese emperors, but in Western China, they played the role of, of the king of the Manchus. And so there's that weird thing where it's kind of a historical accident that this is part of China, but that's the way it is. And the Chinese, I mean, honestly, they kind of rewrite history a little and say, well, it's always been part of China. And like, that's really not true. That's really not true. As far as the, the genetic ancestry of the Uyghurs, that is also complicated because the Uyghurs, they speak a Turkic language. Um, I think it's the Karluk Turk. And that's actually came into, um, you know, East Turkestan between like 1000 AD and 1500 AD. It's not actually the Uyghur dialect of like the Uyghur empire, which flourished 800 to about 1000 AD and the medieval Uyghurs that, you know, from say the secret history of uh, the secret history of the, the secret history of the Mongols um, talks about the Uyghurs. Those Uyghurs were Buddhist and they were speaking Uyghur, but actually that's a different group than the Karluk Turks today. And so they kind of embraced the term Uyghur for themselves, you know, and it, they were influenced partly by Soviet ethnologists who were naming groups like a, uh, Turkic speakers in Central Asia as Uzbeks. Well, traditionally, they didn't call themselves Uzbeks. They called themselves, you know, whatever their town. And Uzbek referred to like the royal family, and they were like Mongols. In any case, you have all of these new terms that are ancient that come back and apply to modern groups, and so that's confusing. And when you look at the genetics of the Uyghurs, they're a mishmash. They're a mix. They have East Asian ancestry. They have Turkic ancestry. They seem to have something that's like a European-ish ancestry, and then they have the Persian-like West Asian ancestry. So there's just a lot of Eurasia is in them. They even have, some of them even have clearly a little bit of South Asian ancestry because people came over the Karakum Highway and up through Kashmir. Um, One thing that I will say in Xinjiang is it's important to remember that the northern and eastern areas were Tokharian. It looks like the southern and western areas, say towards Kashgar, were actually Iranian-speaking. And so you have these two different groups that were assimilated by these Turks that came out of the collapsing Uyghur empire uh, around 1000 AD. Um, but um, Kashgar, Kashi, was kind of never really part of the Uyghur domains. It was always Karluk. And what happened between um, about like 1300 and I believe like four, early 1400s is there were like Islamic jihads that expanded Islam east into Turfan, all the way to, you know, the edge of Gansu. And also this Karluk Turkic identity replaced the earlier, I think the Uyghurs are a branch of the Oghuz Turks. Um, there are people called, they're called Uyghurs. They're spelled a little differently and they're Buddhist and they live in Gansu. And they are the ones that are actually the last cultural descendants of these ancient Uyghurs. So that's a lot to, lot to throw at your listeners, but um, it's complicated. And the genetics actually adds more complication insofar as you're correct. The ancient people in that area seem quite clearly to have not too much East Asian ancestry. There are caves in the area that depict these people, and they look quite European. Today, there's very few people that are, you know, mostly of European or West Asian ancestry in the area, but um, that's still there. It's mixed into their lineage. So they're kind of heirs to those ancient people, but culturally they've shifted a lot. They're no longer Buddhist, obviously. They're Muslim. They no longer speak Uyghur or Tokarian or the uh, West, the Iranian languages like uh, in Khotan. Um, in these areas, they, they spoke Iranian languages. Um, and so there's been a lot of change over the last 2,000 years. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think at the first time I, I was told about like ethnic diversity in in China was a, a very coincidence moment. So uh, Peru has a, a large Chinese diaspora, but it's not actually that diverse and mostly of Cantonese descent. Um, it was traditionally, and now it has changed a little bit, but 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 it still it was Cantonese. And the but there was uh, some years ago, like fifteen years ago, I think there was a in the the train station of Peru that's now closed is. Uh, it's now a cultural center, and the the Chinese embassy did a 
an exhibition of the cultural diversity of, of, of China. So they feature a lot of photos about all the ethnic groups in China. And, and seeing that, I, I was aware of, of, of Chinese diversity in a way that I, I wasn't expecting. That, that, For example, the Tajiks that obviously look very different from, mm -hmm. from Han Chinese and, and other groups like that look much more Southeast Asian and... And so, so it, it's it is a really interesting topic. I think that that uh, uh, that in some ways it, it's a topic that that could surprise some. But but as you mentioned, the the history of of, of China is is a complex one, and it's connected with the history of Central Asia, which also is a a complex one in history, and and in particular the area of Xinjiang. And I, I was wondering, I mean, I have hear that that basically what what they are doing now in in the basically which have been called concentration camps and i think there is a uh and a strong argument to to use the term is that uh now they are sending like han chinese people to marry like the uyghur women and and i mean what's what seems the strategy is disappeared in, uh, that, that their gene pool is, is going to, mm. to, to what, what is the strategy of, of the Chinese government? Well, so I think uh, the issue here is it's, I mean, it's a little bit about the gene, but really it's probably about the culture. So my understanding is there are several things going on. Um, you know, in, in classical, like Marxist communist, you know, fashion, they think, uh, I guess it's ironic since they're communists, but they think modernity and modernization and economic development the spread of capitalism. I mean, maybe they wouldn't call it capitalism, you know, um, socialism with Chinese characteristics into that area, into Urumqi, um, will kind of develop and modernize uh, the Uyghurs who they feel are backwards. So the Chinese, um, the Han Chinese, have this attitude that they are bringing these Tibetans and these Uyghurs into the modern world, and they're helping them. They're civilizing them, just like, you know, Europeans thought the same about the native people. And, you know, you have a whole history in Latin America Um, you know, conquistadors and Spaniards and Portuguese bringing Catholicism and whatnot, right? So that's what they think. Um, one of their strategies is language. And so they are shifting people out of Uyghur language schools. That was one of the traditional ways that they would do it. So once you cut people off from the language, um, you cut people off from their high culture. And if they're illiterate in Uyghur, um, it's much easier to assimilate them. And um, this is, you know, they speak Mandarin. And so they're integrated into the national culture. Um, and you know, the goal is ultimately that they just become other Chinese. Um, they don't have any ethnic cultural distinctiveness. Um, the Chinese are not, you know, I mean, religion is not a central part of their identity. It's just like a consumption good for them. So it's very different from the Uyghurs who are very integrated with Islam. And, and the Uyghur Turkic identity is kind of, um, it's more of a secularized elite um, identity that was constructed really Uyghur identity, East Turkic identity, a lot of it has to do with Islam, partly just because of contrast, I think, with the Chinese. And so they want to get rid of Islam. And, you know, their soft strategy was just like, okay, let's just assimilate these kids into Mandarin language schools. They start thinking of themselves as Chinese and they'll naturally fall away. Now they're trying to accelerate that. And they're doing things like, you know, obviously the marriage incentives. And this is actually just, it's a, it, it, it dates before communism. The Chinese have traditionally assimilated other populations. And sometimes, you know, there have been rules like, oh, people of this ethnicity, they can't marry each other. They have to marry Chinese people because the rule, you know, theory is marry Chinese people, have half Chinese kids and the kids become totally culturally Chinese. Right. And, um, you know, I, we, uh, there are, there are Muslims in China proper called Hui who speak a Chinese dialect of their local region. And um, I, I have known of people of that background or, you know, those people, like once they marry, you know, Han Chinese, In the old days, it used to be, oh, they were trying to convert them and make them Muslim. But today, even if they have a Muslim, you know, identity, they're not very religious and the children just become Han Chinese. So, you know, I mean, I knew someone who, we just thought they were a regular Chinese person. It turned out their mother was Wei, but it had zero effect on them. They're just, you know, their mother just happened to be Wei. And so Wei is an ethnicity. So they try to think of it as an ethnicity rather than a religion. Um, because religions like Islam or Christianity connect people to the outside world, and they're a little suspicious of that, right? Religion, if it's like you have some superstition and astrology, they don't care because it's not politicized and it doesn't integrate you with the rest of the world. So I think their strategy is through cultural absorption, which has been a traditional strategy in China historically that has worked, right? And so that's what they're trying to do. 
Um, in particular, with the children, separate them from the parents, um, inculcate them into, into Mandarin Chinese. Um, I don't know the detail. I, you know, I don't know anything more than you about the camps and whatnot. Um, but uh, obviously, the Uyghurs are um, they're an issue for the Chinese. They're also, you know, it is an issue probably that they are physically distinctive. There's a lot of prejudice, like ethnic prejudice and racism in a very uh, non-organized ideological way, just in like an interpersonal way. And I've, I've read and heard that people that look and can pass as Chinese or just generically East Asian that are Uyghurs, they have a much easier time um, keeping a low profile if they want to. But if your features are such that you stand out as obviously mixed, people know who you are and that can cause some issues. Um, people in China, I've read, are China proper are kind of scared of Uyghurs because there were some terrorist attacks like about 10 years ago at some subways with Uyghurs, um, you know, knife attacks and stuff. And so there, there's always a, a worry about them. And if you look Uyghur, you know, that, that can cause an issue. So it's complicated. And also um, I do want to say, you know, depending on how you calculate it, um, 5 to 10% are ethnic minorities. Now, it's closer to 10% in the official statistics, but you know, there's a lot of people who just put a minority because they get particular government benefits. They're really ethnically Han, basically, but in any case, setting that aside, in a nation of 1.4 billion, that's 70 to 140 million people. So it's actually a lot of people when you think of it, even though proportionally they're a small minority. When, when you hear people say, oh, well, they're only like 3% of the population. Well, 3% of 1.4 billion is, you know, it's like 40 some million, right? You know, that sort of thing. So, Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the situation in, in China is complex and, and also complex is the situation in in, a, in, in other countries like, like India, which also has the, the Indo-European theory that has the, the search for the Indo-Europeans. And, and now with the research of, of David Reich, uh, we are understanding more the, 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 the kind of, of patterns that happen in, 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 in India. So could, could you explain what, what has changed with, with the research of, of David Reich? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, David Reich, there have been other researchers that are that are prominent in ancient DNA. And actually, Reich was brought into the field by Sante Pabo at Max Planck. Um, his original background is more conventional genetics, medical genetics. He did a lot of good early work on uh, blood pressure, hypertension, and, and prostate cancer. But in any case, um, so David Reich is, has the biggest data set of ancient DNA in the world. And, you know, he's trying to create an atlas of human history. And a lot of this happens to be an atlas of migration. And what he's found is, say, like, you know, three to four thousand years ago, for example, there was massive migrations out of the heart of Eurasia by these steppe people. Um, they can go they go by different names, like sometimes they're called Yamnaya, which is the earlier phase. Later, there's local cultures like Andronovo, Sintashta, Corded Ware. So all around the center of the Eurasian steppe, they expanded into Europe, they expanded into India, they expanded into West Asia. They had different impacts in different regions. Um, in Northern Europe, it looks like, yeah, maybe about like half of the ancestry can be derived to the steppe, you know, um, they mixed with these local farmers and there were still some residual hunter gatherers in a few places in India. Um, you know, it's a smaller proportion, but the languages are Indo-Aryan. The word Aryan is the name for the Southern branch, the Indo-Iranians, they call themselves the Arya. And they're about like, you know, depending on how you calculate it, maybe like 10 to 20% of the ancestry in the northern half of India, like in some castes, like Brahmins, and in some places in the northwest, they're 30% of the ancestry. Whereas, like the average peasant farmer in Uttar Pradesh, which is like the central northern state in the Ganges, Gangetic Plain, is like maybe like 15% Indo Aryan, right? But the language that they speak is Indo Aryan. And also, the Y chromosomes, the paternal lineages, a much higher proportion are Indo Aryan. So these were men, they were males. Um, they carried Y chromosomes. They didn't seem to bring too many females um, wherever they went. And this was the same pattern in Europe where it looks like it's multiple waves of male migration, not too many women. They took women from the local populations and mixed in with them. And so it's a recurrent motif and they spread, um, they spread, you know, like certain like tropes and, and cultural patterns like, uh, you know, sky gods, you know, patriarchal sky gods. And we know this from later in history where the Turks and the Mongols, they had Tengri you know, the, the sky god. Well, I mean, the Indo-Europeans had their own version. And so Zeus is actually a sky god. And he's, he's you know, the Greek form, we know. But, I mean, Jupiter, 
Um, also, you know, you know, Dios Potter um, in India, I think he's Dios as well. So, you know, you know, divinity, divine, like all these words go back to these common Indo-European roots. And, um, you know, it's mediated through this culture of like, you know, band of brothers, these warriors of the steppe that expanded out, conquered a bunch of civilized states and kind of fused and synthesized with them. So, um, you know, in Greek, when you see something like NTH, nth, that's not Indo-European. That's from the local Aegean dialect that they obviously absorbed. And so a lot of Greek culture is not Indo-European at all. Um, it's indigenous, it's native, similar with India. Like you look at Indian culture and a lot of it's not Aryan at all. But it's it's the local cultural um, you know matrix that was there that they fused with, and so um, like genetics, I mean genetics is telling us that you have these people who are moving into an area and they're mixing with the locals and producing something new, a synthesis, right? Same thing happens culturally, obviously. Yeah, I, I mean it's a, I mean there has been a lot of of, of talk uh, lately of of the Bajaranada party of of, of Modi and and. And some people have called them neo-Nazi and and things like like that. And and I, I mean I, I don't understand that much of, of in politics to be honest. But I think it's it's they it's I don't think as far as I know I don't think they are that much ideologically united as as I thought because when I first heard of Mori like. Uh, the people that were excited about Modi were libertarians. So libertarians in my timeline were saying, Modi is going to change things. Modi is going to do that or that. And then they started backing off. But, and, and he seems to be much more, much than, than, than ethno-nationalists to say in some way, he's much more of a religious nationalist. So he's, seems much more centered in, 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 in the predominance of, of Hinduism. And 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 obviously that has made the economic issues that libertarians champion uh, uh, after thought in many ways. And, and and there are no libertarians that actually like uh, if they refer to Modi's now to only criticize him. Um, and it's interesting because I, I I mean it's true that it has been like study for for a while that 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 the Nazis were interested in in parts of, of of Indian mythology. They were interested in the Tibet. They were interested in a, a lot of the occultism has relationship or or, or an interest in, in 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 India particularly. But to to what degree there there is a connection really there? I mean, because I think there is a connection in the sense that I think. Uh, Modi and, and, and elements of the far right have uh, an Islamophobic animals, but in in an ideological sense, what what do they believe about their ethnic origins? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little confused. It's really bizarre, actually. I get into a lot of arguments with um, the Hindu nationalists, or like overnight, I usually go to sleep and I get up and I get a lot of um, on Twitter, I get a lot of messages from them. Uh, so uh, traditionally, Indians of all ideological stripes um, had a pretty generic vanilla view of Indo-Aryans migrating in or invading. Um, there was nothing heterodox or culturally particular. What ended up happening for some reason, though, in the last 10 years, it became highly idealized, um, ideological. And um, Marxists believe in an Aryan invasion, and the Hindu nationalists on the right believe that the Aryans are actually indigenous. Um, they actually don't really care about the rest of the world. Like their, their models don't really make any sense in the rest of the world, but they don't care. All they care about is India. And so now they believe that the Aryans were indigenous and there were no migrations. And I mean, basically a lot of frankly nonsense, um, in the hardcore view, which is like kind of like the popular hardcore populist view. Um, but, um, the Marxists and the communists and, you know, the far left, the secularists, whatever you want to call them, there's various groups. I mean, not all of them are communists. A lot of them are probably neoliberal that are secular left on the left in India, but um, they also go in an extreme way where, I mean, empirically, I think they're kind of closer to the truth, but the way they say it is very, it's frankly pretty offensive to a lot of Hindus in terms of their saying like, well, you shouldn't be offended that Islam and Muslims came and destroyed your culture because the Aryans came and destroyed your culture. And actually Hinduism is not Indian. It's from, it's from the steppe. And a lot of things that are frankly just, 
way too far from the evidence that we have. Like what we know from the genetics is there's a substantial migration from the steppe about 3,500 years ago. From what earlier philologists and, and mythologists have, have said and, and proposed, like, you know, it just seems plausible that the Indo-Aryan, the Vedic Aryans were relatively recent migrants from a steppe pastoral environment into the North Indian plain. But it's a bit much to say that, well, they brought in this Hindu religion because like, the reality is like none of the other pagan Indo-Europeans were Hindu. It seems like, you know, what you would define as Hindu doesn't really make sense outside of India because it probably had a lot of Indian um, features to it, right? And so in that way, the secularists are wrong, but the, the Hindu nationalists, they just want to say that it was all ancient and it was all like in India for tens of thousands of years, like just like patently ridiculous things, frankly, but um, they're not scientists and they don't really care about the science. They just want popular slogans. So, you know, if you're an empirical scientific person, it's a little difficult because there's two extremely ideological camps that are kind of pulling at you. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's really not navigable. It's just, I just kind of throw up my hands and just try to say what I think is true and, you know, not concern myself with the ideology. Okay, so I think we we could pass to to the other topic that I was going to to ask you. It was the 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 issue with personal genomics. So there has been a, a rise in 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 genetic testing, in particular people wanting to to know their genetic makeup. I think in, in, there is more recently also um, an interest in knowing what uh, diseases or, or possibility of, of diseases or healthcare problems that, that could arise. Um, but, but how do you think these kind of, uh, of issues are going to, to, to change society? Because I think it, it's already generating a consciousness that there wasn't there, in, at, at least in a large part. Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing is transparency. Um, so, you know, there is has been an issue traditionally where people, um, you know, there's infidelities and people might be raising a, a child that's not theirs or they know that the child is not theirs, but they still will pretend in public that the child is theirs, like these sorts of things. Um, that's just not going to happen in the future because everyone will know everyone else's genetic relationship to each other. So, you know, you're just not going to be able to hide things. There's going to be a lot of stuff in the past that's going to come up. Like I know people who you know, found out that, oh, their grandfather or great-grandfather wasn't who they thought he was because there was an affair. And this is something that happened, say, 100, 100, 100 years ago, 120 years ago. The people are all dead. But you know from the genes that, like, oh, these people that you thought were cousins, they're not cousins, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the transparency is going to be a big issue. When it comes to disease, I mean, right now, we, there's not a lot we can do, but, you know, it's going to get better and better. And again, you'll have probabilities across your whole life. You'll know certain things. There's a very small minority, but it's not tiny, of people that are at high risk for having heart attacks in their 40s and 50s, right? Today, or at least like 10 years ago, you would just look at family history and maybe like, oh, but you're not sure if you have the gene. Today, you would know if you had the gene. Today, you would know that you're going to have heart issues in your 40s or 50s. Um, if you want to, you can know that when you're five or 18 or whenever. Society needs to make a decision what children should and can know and like what role parents have in it. And then the other thing that's weird and, and like kind of bizarre is like when you talk about your own genetic background, you're actually talking like in part about your family. And if you have full siblings, that's half of their genes. So if you divulge and disclose something about your genetic state, you're disclosing them. And so there's all this issue of like collective and familial um, uh, just responsibility and communication and consent. And it gets really complicated. But, you know, this is just another tool in um, calculating probabilities about your life in a lot of cases um, there will be a lot of a lot of little marginal improvements due to genetics in our lives but i'm not sure about like if it's going to be one big thing for most people yeah i, I was thinking for example in, in spain what could the, the results be because uh, i was had like Spanish history is is taught and and i think it has influenced the way that that, that we in Latin America, understand Spain, and I think it is uh, is very problematic because when when people talk about the the the, the Islamic invasion, they like 
mentioned many times about the Arabic invention, but the truth is that there was a significant uh, component that was Berber or what they are now called Amashing. And, and the Amashing are, are a very, uh, a very heterodox uh, ethnic group. I think the, the result in Spain could be very curious because the Amashing, I mean, there are some groups that look much more like we traditionally think about sub-Saharan Africans, and there are the Kabila, which look very Western, much more even than than some Lebanese or Syrians, which for the Middle East look pretty, pretty much whiter than the rest of, of the Middle Eastern. So it's going mm-hmm. to be interesting, I think, that that, that kind of, of, of developments like um, are going to 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 appear and and but also how you see the the issue with Native American ancestry because it was a a, a, a contentious disease when 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 Elizabeth Warren mentioned that that she was of Native American descent and mm-hmm. and and this topic was uh, I think obviously it's a it's a topic that has been politicized and and and, and on both sides and and it, it's it's very curious because I think it's it shows that you know she was um, that how like genetics could be used, and I also think that it shows how culture is. So in Latin America, so basically, if, if you don't speak uh, an indigenous language, and if you don't live in a rural area, it's very w- rare that you will identify as indigenous, even if most, uh, if someone does a genetic testing, and, and most of their 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 gene pool comes from from indigenous population, but in the U.S. is very different. Uh, I think, and 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 that is something that sometimes gets confused because the the history, of, the genetic history of, of the pre-colonial Americas are we are really just starting to scratch the surface. So, I think there was a moment where people thought that that basically everyone in in in, in the Americas was more or less the same, and I think we are. We're moving past that 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 moment, and I think in, in some ways we are going to to understand that in a, in a different perspective. I don't know what what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, you threw a lot out there. Um, I, I'll, I'll speak to the Warren thing really quickly because I've talked to some Native Americans uh, in the United States, which is a very specific thing. Um, Native Americans in the United States under the understand themselves not as an ethnic group but as nationalities, and so. Um, what they were really offended about was when Warren said she was a Cherokee. That's like saying you're a particular nationality. And she, I mean, like I could say that I'm Australian, but I'm not Australian. Australian is a very specific legal thing where you're born or you're naturalized as an Australian, you have an Australian passport or you couldn't get an Australian passport. You're an Australian citizen, right? Um, It's just, it doesn't make any sense to say I'm Australian. So that's what they're mad about. Um, they think it's a nationality, and you can't claim someone's nationality without going through the process. For them, it's not necessarily about ancestry, although obviously with blood quanta or blood quantum and other things, it, there is an ancestral element. But um, the genetic evidence is pretty clear. Warren does have indigenous ancestry, native ancestry, and it's considerably more than you would expect from a typical white American. So what I think is the most likely... Um, scenario is there was a family legend based on truth of descent from some native tribe. We don't know whether it was Cherokee in Oklahoma because there's a bunch of tribes in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, it became embellished in the family line, even though it was back in the 19th century. So it looks like someone of partial native ancestry existed in her family in the 19th century. And so obviously this memory persisted down the generations. But there was no real connection to Native American nationality. Uh, to Native American formal identity. And so, um, you know, she was confusing and complaining things. In terms of the New World as a whole, the reason that we thought that people in the New World were all the same is probably we had really primitive genetic techniques. And so we didn't really, um, we weren't able to look very closely at, at like subtle differences because most, most, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of the indigenous ancestry in the New World is from a, a, a Beringian population in, you know, between Alaska and now, you know, the far east of Siberia um, that flourished, say, 15 to 20,000 years ago and then expanded all over North and South America. 
And so, you know, 20, 15, 20,000 years is a long time for there to be diversification. So it's not like nothing happened, but, you know, it is from kind of the same population. But there are also like subtle traces of other things in places like the Amazon and obviously in the Arctic where it's not so subtle. It's like quite clear they have they have later migrations and Adene speakers, um, Athapaskans and, and, you know, there's the Navajo or Nadene. And so there's a little bit of diversity there. And then also just diversification in Sutu, like within the New World. And we know this now from the genome-wide analyses that we have with the chips and the sequencing. And so, um, you know, they're exploring that. And with the, the Andean paper that you alluded to, you know, they have ancient DNA now. Um, and they're showing that, oh, for example, like one of the results of that paper, and I didn't look at it too closely, but one of the results from that paper was there is actually a fair amount of like difference between highland people and lowland people ecologically where they don't seem to be mixing a lot over long periods of time and then sometimes there's periods of mixture and then it stops again and so um i think this is like showing the interaction between ecology and politics so often what we see in other um situations is social political changes can result in periods of rapid mixture and then eventually the mixture mixing stops and it crystallizes into these like you know broad ethnic boundaries and so I think that was happening in the new world. So it's basically the exact same thing that was happening in the old world. Um, it's just that, you know, it's in a different timescale context. And, um, you know, because of the lack of historical knowledge of a lot of what happened before 1492, um, we have to go through archaeology and genetics more than using his, just than being able to use historical, you know, um, information. Yeah. I, I, no, you mentioned it. You you make me um, remember that that there also has been some 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 articles that have been published about uh, what the genetic studies when when it going to become more more mainstream in in, in Latin America are are going to to say about the the, the Jewish component of, of of the ancestry because like. Uh, the Inquisition make uh, many Spanish and, and Portuguese Jews uh, forcibly convert to 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 Christianity to Catholicism, and there are cases like of, of cities like Monterrey in, in Mexico or Santa Cruz de la Sierra in 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 Bolivia that, in theory, at least were founded by 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 crypto Jews by. By by converts, I think in, in the case of, of, of Monterrey, I think the, the governor of that region was was even a, a victim of, of the Inquisition by, by his what what the, the Inquisition said he was his, his judified practices, um, and and I think there there also has been like uh, writings about like the the Jewish presence in, in Potosi, which was a, a big. Uh, uh, silver mine in, in Bolivia, also uh, in other cities, there have been an, an important uh, like like this uh, idea that, that there was a significant population of, of, of Jewish. Sometimes with having uh, their crypto Jewish practices and and, and and try to keep some some Jewish customs, and other times people that that were converted to 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 Christianity, but, but the, the, where they have the moniker of new Christians. So in order to, to distinguish them from, from the, from the old Christians, we were the, the Spaniards that were before uh, there. So I think it's going to be interesting what, what this genetic testings are, are going to, to, to say, what, what do you know about that? What, what do you know about the, the, the Jewish or, or Middle Eastern components in, in Spain and Latin America? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of things to say now because we have a lot of research. Um, I will say um, there's, like, a lot of detailed evidence from Spain. Basically, the southern half of Spain, there's a lot of Berber and a little bit of sub-Saharan African ancestry um, there. Like, say, I mean, we have ancient DNA, so we can see the, the – we can see the migration of the Moriscos out, but a lot of them stayed and became Catholic, you know, um, and obviously with the Jews, the same. So, uh, you know, it's a minority, um, you know, say Andalusia and, and Valencia, these areas, Valencia, um, of, of Middle Eastern ancestry. It looks like it's more Berber, um, and that's more distinctive anyway, you know. So um, that's there. Uh, one of the interesting things is if you look at the Basques, um, they don't have Jewish or Berber ancestry. And this is actually historically attested. So the Basques, did not have to go through, um, you know, the purity of, you know, cleanliness and blood tests and stuff like that because it was just assumed they didn't have any Jewish ancestry, and that actually turns out to be true. 
Um, in terms of Sephardic Jewish ancestry, it's it's there, um, not as much as the Berber in Spain. But um, in the New World, there's a lot of like historical and anthropological work, mostly in America, in the Southwest, in um, in uh, what is now New Mexico, about whether there was were there Moranos, you know, like uh, crypto Jews there. And there were some anthropologists that hypothesized 20 years ago that actually they were Protestant converts, and they said they were crypto Jews because they wanted to like get away from their mestizo mixed race identity and say they were white and there's all this stuff well the genetic tests come back and um it's not 100 percent, but there's a lot of genetic evidence now that yes there were more than the usual number of sephardic people like people of sephardic heritage in large parts of the new world like it's obviously spotty like there are probably some areas that didn't get many sephardic jews but some areas seem to have more sephardic jews than you would see in the southern half of spain um, genetically, right? So like, there's certain like ancestry segments and stuff that you can detect. So basically, all the rumors are true. I mean, that's 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 my conclusion. I'm about ninety percent sure that um, a lot of the talk about Sephardic Jews is rooted in a real historical memory from real people. Like we do know that there are historical records of certain Sephardic Jews that came to the New World, but there's just so many rumors and so many local legends that people thought, oh well, maybe they're just exaggerating. But if you look at the genetic evidence, it, it looks like there's a lot there, um, and it's more than just exaggerating. Like a lot of people have Jewish ancestry, Sephardic Jewish ancestry across the New World. They obviously left, I think, at a higher rate from Spain uh, and Portugal, uh, because you know they're obviously in, in Portugal as well, um, than, than, than other people, just because they, you know, they could escape the Inquisition, the standard things, right? A lot of them went to Morocco, too, as, as you know, and... And the Jews also went to Turkey, but um, you know, the history and the genes. I mean, they're, they're kind of aligning together here and informing each other. And what the genes do is, it just gives you a really solid foundation for certain positions, and then the history can fill in the gaps. That's how I think of it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 certainly an interesting um, uh, topic. I mean, I, I'm really interested in in. in Jewish Latin American history because, uh, as you know, I I study in the National University of San Marcos, which also there are several crypto Jews who studied there, and, and one of the most curious was uh, Antonio de Leon Pinello, who wrote a, a really interesting book, what which was called uh, the Paradise in in the Americas. So it's very uh, basically an encyclopedic book about the Americas, uh, the knowledge that they have in the 17th century. And but he also had a, a very kind of, of surrealist theory that that um, that the 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 human population originated in the Americas and the Noah was born in 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 the paradise which was uh, located in between the the Peruvian and, and Brazilian jungle and it's it's one of the most surrealist texts that I have ever read. It was a text that wasn't published, uh, probably because he, he knew that the Inquisition could come after him. And and there was uh, also at that time a priest that previous uh, called Friday Las Casas, which was uh, which wrote about that Lima should be the new Jerusalem and that, that, that the the church and the synagogue should should merge that that um, and and that it, Lima should be a, a new center for uh, a spiritual and intellectual um, uh, reborn of the world. So, so these kind of prophetic thinkers have uh, have existed in Peru. I, I, it's it, Peru sadly hasn't been done that much uh, genetics research. There is only one university that, precisely San Marcos, is the only one that offers genetics as as uh, as a major and and and. and um, general universities that teach biology don't have that many students as compared to other countries, but but it will be interesting to 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 see what's the the legacy of 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 of, of the Jewish presence because certainly the ideas of, of these Jewish thinkers were very radical and at the same time very surrealist in in, in a very curious way. Yeah, I mean. You know, people who are on the margins or liminal between two identities, between new worlds. I mean, so like, I, I mean, Spinoza, you know, arguably the, well, I think he is probably the most famous Sephardic Jew, Spinoza. 
I mean, I was going to say Maimonides and others, but, you know, like in, in the wider world, it's definitely Spinoza, even if he's not influential among Jews, um, you know, and there's a lot of talk, histor- you know, just historians and, and scholars have talked about the fact that, you know, he was a, he was a Sephardic Jew who was from a Marano crypto-Jewish background in the Netherlands. So there's all these different identities that he was negotiating and it allowed him to synthesize and come out with um, this weird pantheism which arguably influenced a lot of the Enlightenment in the 18th century and, and made a huge impact. Um, and so I think um, it's just interesting to think about the fact that, you know, genetically people come together and they synthesize, but culturally and intellectually the same thing happens too. And um, I think what the genetics is telling us is people mixed. And, you know, we know that people mix like biologically, but if you're mixing biologically, usually that also means that you're mix- mixing um like intellectually, like culturally, like not always. Like there are cases where there can be total cultural erasure, um, but that's you know a special circumstance. Usually there's some mixture, and so I think the genes can kind of give us a general framework, and um, you know the humanistic studies can can fill in the gaps. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think we could pass on to to the to the last topic that was going to to be the. The rise of, of of the sperm banks and and particular what it has been called the the, the phenomenon as as Viking babies. So um, I, I mean maybe you you will explain, but it seems that Denmark for some reason has a lot of sperm banks and they have like uh, exporting uh, Danish sperm to to a lot of countries and and and, and very curiously to to China. So uh, people may know that China is a country that that for their one-child policy has uh, an imbalance between the number of, 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 of women and, and, and men. So there are uh, much more men than women. But still, it seems that there are some women that don't want to be married and but still want to have kids. And, and, and in China, it seems that it's forbidden the, the kind of, 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 of assisted reproduction. So they... they They, you, they they are clients of these uh, Danish sperm banks and 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 do you know about this development? What what is what you know about this? Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's been if you guys um if listeners can Google like I think Planet Money sperm bank, there's an episode on it. So my understanding is like the Danish sperm banks. One reason they're big is uh, the laws are very liberal libertarian in Denmark about that, um, whereas they're not, for example, in Sweden, I think. So similar nations don't have these liberal laws of donation and 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 commercialization of it. Um, Denmark does. And so, you know, just first mover and um, advantages of just the, the skills kind of accrue and amplify positive feedback loops. And then also a lot of people, they want, you know, they, they want whiter, blonder babies. Um, you know, that's just seems like a fact. I mean, I know in Brazil... They want them uh, in Turkey. They were importing data sperm, and the government put a block on it because I think they were. I mean, the government is mostly Turkish men, <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, the government actually blocked it because they didn't want everyone to, you know, end up Danish genetically. I guess. Um, so that was, you know, that was happening, and I know there's some Asian nations that are also getting Danish sperm. Um, I know that there has been actually a flip side. I know in Norway, they were getting sperm from Asia because, you know, the Norwegians were being told like, oh, well, the mixed race children are, ha- are healthier and stuff. So sometimes it flips around. But um, yeah, there's definitely a demand for this kind of like, you know, I-, I guess maybe the Thor movies, people are watching the Thor movies and they think their kids will look like Chris Helmsworth if they get Scandinavian sperm. I don't know. I mean, that's that's my hypothesis. Um, there's a, There's a time... There's a time and season for everything, and this is that. I mean, I'm pretty libertarian about this sort of stuff. If, if people want it, you know, give it to them. But yeah, um, I mean, I know there, there's a lot of cultural taboos around it. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously, like the the case that that came to mind, like in in the mixture of of of, of white and 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 a nation, it's the the hafu in Japan. I mean, I know that it's it's a term that is broadly to, to describe the mix of Japanese with other uh, populations, but it, it seems that, as far as I understood, that that the hafu that are half European are are, 
are sometimes considered like like more attractive and and have a kind of social status as different as the half that are half black or half Arab or half half Latin or other things. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Oh, you, just, yeah. you just cut out at the last at the last. So did you have a question? Because I didn't hear the last part of it. Oh yeah. So the 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 what it come to mind to me was the hafu in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the yeah. Relation, the... Yeah. Well, I mean, so the, the issue with with haifu, from what I know, is I know people who are like you know their their dad is American, whatnot, is um. They're exoticized, I think would be the technical term. <laughs> and uh, that's just literally true. They are seen to be like physically better, more attractive, but also they're not seen as as Japanese, you know? And so it's this the flip side is like even if you're born and raised in Japan, if you're half European, um, people traditionally perceive you as other. And, um, you know, they'll be, oh, you can speak Japanese really well. How, how did that happen? And, you know, I, I know a girl, she, she would be like, well, I was born and raised here. And, and, you know, it depends on what you look like. So she looked a little bit more Japanese. She looked considerably more Japanese than her sister, who looked more European. And, you know, her sister was just always like, people would always be like, oh, you're a gaijin. And she'd be like, no, I'm not. You know, my friend, she, she looked more Japanese, but she was kind of like taller and, um, I mean, she wasn't heavy, but you know how Japanese women are very delicate, and she was built more just st- robustly. That's the way I'll say it. Just more <laughs> athletic, you know? She wasn't, yeah. she, I mean, in a Japanese context, she's big, but in America, you wouldn't think she was big at all, or in Europe, you know? But anyway, she, she, one time she told me that she worked at some restaurant, and they were like, oh, um, you're kind of big. Um, you should go find somewhere else to work. We don't, there's like, you just take up too much space in the in the dining hall, you know. And, and so the, the you know, and they're basically saying like, we know you can't help it because you're half white, and so you're just too big. Like we would want you to lose weight, but it's not really the weight. It's like your bone structure is just too big, you know. And so they were very like honest about it with her, and that's what she had to deal with, you know. Maybe it's changed. That was like 20 years ago. I haven't talked to her in a long time, but um, you know. So there's a lot of ambiguity there. A lot of people are, people can like, you know, have two thoughts in their mind. Like on the one hand, like they want this Danish sperm, but on the other hand, oh, those people are weird and they're not, they're not pure like us. You know, I mean, that, that can both be true. Yeah. Th- there is also a phenomenon that is interesting. I was, uh, have been reading and actually some news channels have, have, have done some small, Reports about this that this the phenomenon of, of of Chinese men moving to to Africa and having uh, kids with uh, African women, and that's a, a, an interesting phenomenon. I mean, that's that's literal. I mean, you know, people in Latin America will understand what's the reason for that. That's literal colonization. So in a lot of these countries, um, foreign nationals cannot own property, but if they marry a local. They can own property through her, right? If they have children who are locals, who are born there, who are citizens, um, that anchors them in terms of their businesses and their property can pass on to their children because their children are citizens of Mozambique or Zambia, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting, I mean, China-African relationship is, is going to be interesting. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, I have to say, like for example, like the the largest private university here, like the Pontifical Catholic University of Peru, it has taken a very staunch pro-Chinese view. Like they have a Confucius Institute, but they are like talking using the talking points of of of, of the embassy, the, of the Chinese embassy, a lot of the time to the point that it's really disturbing because there is not any kind of critical assessment of of, of just parroting the the points of the embassy. And I think it's it's very curious because, like, when I try to to make sense of the of this idea that that that, that it's obviously a, a relationship that, as you mentioned, has this kind of colonialist elements, but at the same time, uh, some have argued, like, for example, 
the French presence in Africa is not that humanitarian, but much more um, uh, have to do with the strategic resources and, and, and things like that. Like extraction. I think, extraction. Yeah. Like I think it was uh, when Macron the last time he he went to to Africa, he opened he was open to questions and 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 one African young woman asked him uh, why there are more French soldiers in Africa than African students in France, <laughs> and Macron didn't knew how to respond to that, and it's 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 very like I think that that is is going to be like. I mean, it's it's a phenomenon that that is like like shows how related are are, are kind of of, of this uh, this mixtures that are political. Uh, we were talking at the beginning that are historical, political, but at the same time, genetically, it, it's very difficult that that nations that that that, that have relationship with each other um, are not going to to have relationships that are going to at one point be genetic. For example. I have seen like like the the issue with with pop culture like it, it has like the idea that, that is a lot of times online like the waifu like for example when in the recent news that 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 the North Korea like uh, Kim Jong Un was was dead like it it, it appeared image of, of her sister and and the people were saying no her sister is attractive and and they were comparing her to to anime characters and it was really a weird moment that, 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 that but but it shows that that kind of aesthetical concepts uh, shift with time and for example the the idea of, 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 of Asian women as attractive was not necessarily something that, that I think uh, decades before was was so high as, as now that I think anime culture has has a, a huge uh, grab on, on the population particularly in the young yeah no I mean. I mean, you know, sometimes the past is um, a foreign country and sometimes it's not, you know, it depends on what you're talking about and how you view it. I know that, uh, I mean, for example, um, I know the Ottomans and the early Turks, they viewed themselves as East Asian, you know, because that's what their origins were. And so the paintings make them look very Asiatic, but actually by, by the time that some of these paintings were done, they were already mostly like, you know, Southeast European, West Asian looking people. And so the aesthetic preference was still towards like an East Asian facial shape and, and just the eyes and whatnot. And so they, they changed the painting to make it like that, even though they didn't look like that. So just shows you how there's always a, you know, I, my personal belief is culture tends to lag. Cultural norms tend to lag um, structural forces, right? So like economics, military, all these other things they can go ahead of culture and then culture will catch up later, which means the culture is often out of sync. So I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of the world right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think that the, the ways are, are, are shifting in a, in a very radical way. The, the place that the China and, and, and actually like India and Turkey also have a, uh, a, a really important thing because, like uh, uh, in Peru and other parts of Latin America, there are a lot of, of Indian sub operas and, and Turkish sub operas. So people are are starting to to watch things beyond the, the Mexican telenovela, which was the or the Mexican sub opera as, as it's now overseas. So I think it's it's it it shows. Uh, I know that that it it, it kind of have this this uh, this uh, like. One sees the difference when when one sees a, a, an India suburb and when it one sees a documentary about India, like the the idea of, of colorism, the, the idea of, of the caste, the system, and and in the same way in in in, in Turkey, like like the the suburbs, the Turkish suburbs generally present much more light-skinned uh, characters. When in Turkey, there are also when you know there are. But in the news or something, there are also Turks that look much more darker. But I, I think it's 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 interesting that 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 the way that we are perceiving the war is, is changing, and and I think in that that way the the, the way that we understand the, our war is, is going to be shifted, and 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 that is going to be really interesting. I think that the. The, what the as we were talking at the beginning, like the ancient DNA also is going to 
well as rewrite many many of the chapters of history that we that we taught as a searching and and this is going to be a really interesting development. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely think so. Um, a lot of my, you know, paper reading has been given over to ancient DNA now. Um, it brings together a lot of my interests. So um, I'm very excited for the next, you know, the 2020s. You know, the, at some point we're going to run out of things to learn from ancient human DNA and going to have to focus on animals. But we still have a lot. We still have a lot that's coming out. Um, I know there's going to be new stuff in the Middle East in the next six months, and they're getting much better at, like, ancient DNA from the tropics. So, um it's going to be a lot to learn, a lot to know. Um, it's going to be exciting. So with that, I think we could leave it here. So where could people find you online? Well, so, um, you know, like I said, I blog at Gene Expression. Sometimes I contribute to uh, National Review, City Journal, other places like that. My Twitter, Razib Khan. Um, so, you know, the easiest place to find all my place, all, all of my um, outlets is just go to Razib.com, and I point to everything there, R-A-Z-I-B dot com so just do that and you'll find it okay thanks for it has been a pleasure talking to you yeah it's been great man